HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, September 28th, 2021, and we're talking about lagers. Uh, let's go through and introduce our guests because this is quite a show. Um, first, Jeff. Jeff, can you say your name and um, what your new book is? Yeah, my name is Jeff Allworth. I write about beer, and today, as we record this, uh, my new book, The Beer Bible Second Edition, is a, a just released and just available. And we are thrilled to be uh, talking to you this week. Um, and then our other guest, Jack, will you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Jack Hendler. I'm one of the co-founders of Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers here in Framingham, Massachusetts. Well, we, we got a fortuitous uh, scheduling here where we've got the Jeff's new uh, the Beer Bible second edition with a huge lager chapter. Is it a, lo- a lager chapter, Jeff? No, it's a logger section with many logger <laughs> chapters. So when I, I opened the book and it's like this, the classic loggers is this huge section. And I thought that it, it makes, I know we were going to talk to to Jack at Jack's Abbey about fall loggers. So uh, I think this is kind of the, the, the perfect uh, two guests to be together. Um, let, let's go with Jack first. So Jack, um, just to, to place you with our like New York and national leaders. I mean, everybody knows Jack's Abbey and your your different lagers. Um, it's always a go-to for, for most people I know. Um, when you first started out brewing, and why did you choose lagers and what were some of your inspirations? Yeah, so we, we opened the brewery about 10 years ago. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And 10 years ago, we knew that there was a real lack of craft lagers in the market. And that was something that we really thought that should be more focused on. And in the last 10 years, there's been a little bit of a growth in lager production, but for the most part, there really aren't a lot of lager focused breweries in the country. Um, there may be more than 10 years ago, but probably less as a percentage uh, as the whole IPA market has really dominated 
And, you know, we, we really want to make sure that craft loggers get a little bit more uh, attention and a little bit more focus. And we are, we are excited to see that there is starting to be a bit of a turn uh, at this point, And people are thinking more about that lager beer. That's great. And then Jeff, um, you know, with the new edition of the book, first of all, why a second edition? What's changed since the first edition came out? Because I love I love the beer Bible. Well, thank you. Uh, I, you know, I thought when I wrote the first book, I, I really wrote it with an eye for making an evergreen reference guide. I, I didn't want to, you know, highlight a bunch of beers that might only be one offs or not made, you know, in the future or talk about. Uh, the most cutting edge, bleeding edge stuff that that might change. You know, talk about how Goza is the very best style and brewed <laughs> IPAs, and uh, I wanted it to be more general and and kind of uh, something that people could refer to for you know years to come, and, and it would be accurate. And then I would say that the past decade has seen more change in the beer industry uh, in a in a pretty fast moving beer industry, admittedly, than we've seen in decades, um, particularly in the way styles changed and. Uh, the most important style in, in that whole thing is IPAs, the what I call the American tradition, um, where Americans have learned to brew with hops bred specifically for hoppy ales. Um, like, you know, it started out with Citra, but then we've had this kind of onslaught of wonderful hops to make these beers uh, so fruity and, and lush and delicious. And you know, I turned my the manuscript in in 2013. It was published. The book was published in 2015. So all of that was kind of missed. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the the first stages of that evolution, but the word hazy IPA does not appear in in your first edition. And uh, the way breweries were making beers has really shifted a lot to accentuate those wonderful hops we have available now. So it really needed an entire reworking. Um, on, on this really important style, which I've now traveled quite a bit internationally, and it is a style of beer that is brewed worldwide now. Um, there are craft breweries opening up, you know, in Mexico City and uh, Krakow, Poland and Beijing and uh, Bangalore, and they, they make these wonderful hoppy American ales, and it's what people want to read about. So it, that was kind of the main motivation. I was feeling like people are going to turn to the IPA chapter, and they're going to read about what IPAs were like a decade ago, and that's not going to be helpful. So yeah. I, that was sort of the, the motivation, but then I was able to change more in the book than than just that chapter. I was you know, able to revisit a bunch of stuff and add stuff. And unfortunately, there were a few styles that maybe kind of on the wane and I had to demote a few styles too. Yeah. Hey, you know, there's there's one reason we wanted to talk about lagers today is this because um, I've been drinking a lot of the Jack's Craft Abbey and they've got some fall lagers out. So let's just talk about some of the styles because I know styles are, are important. Uh, I know in GABF this year, the, the beer awards, the, I, I, um, my friend Chris O'Leary said that the lager category submissions were up by like 20%. So Jack, tell us about uh, the Copper Legend. That's the like your Oktoberfest style beer. Wh- where did that come from for you? And what were like some of the inspirations for the Ameritsen or Fest beer that, that you've liked uh, in your brewing life? Yeah, Copper Legend. So Copper Legend's a beer that we've brewed since the beginning of the brewery. The first fall we were open, we brewed our first Copper Legend. And so I guess this is, geez, year 11th year of Copper Legend. And our our beer sort of is in between two styles. So when you think of Oktoberfest, there's the Meritzen style Oktoberfest, which is sort of that amber style lager. 
And there's also the more modern interpretation. That's the Munich style or the Wiesenbier for the, the festival, Oktoberfest. And uh, so we actually brew both. So we have Copper Legend, which is uh, our seasonal beer that we that we do for full distribution. And we actually just canned yesterday a beer called uh, Munich Style Fest, which is our interpretation of a more modern Oktoberfest style. And that's a more golden, a little bit stronger. Um, and that's a triple decocted lager that we do. But, you know, brewing triple decocted beers isn't necessarily the most practical thing for large scale distribution releases. We do do a, a single decoction on our Copper Legends, um, but that's a, you know, it's a significant adjustment or time commitment to do a triple decoction beer versus a single decoction beer. Yeah. And what's the difference? Is just some flavor and everything. I mean, I keep seeing the, those terms used how is single and triple different yeah so this is one of my favorite topics that absolutely no one understands and uh no matter how i try to explain this to people <laughs> uh it, it you know it's really challenging but you know the main idea of, of a decoction is that you're actually boiling the grains so for a standard craft beer, a standard ale, you do what's called an infusion, maybe a step infusion. So you just mix the grain and water at a set temperature. Um, but for our beers, we're actually boiling parts of the mash and that that those boiling steps are called decoction steps. So depending on how many times you're going to boil your grain will be if it's a single decoction, double decoction or triple decoction. But the main the main thing is it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy to, to do this. But the reason we do it is the incorporation of a lot of great flavor compounds that you get. There's melanoidin reactions that happen. And there's also, um, just from a, a, a production standpoint, there's uh, you, you can help with attenuation and help with some conversion of, of starches and proteins, depending on what breasts you have. So you can get a bit of a drier beer, a bit of a higher attenuation, and still get the full intensity, sweetness, and maltiness that we're looking for in these styles of beer. Wow, that's great. Hey, Jeff, um, in your lager section in Beer Bible, the second edition, um, you really cover everything. Um, what are some things that, that our, our listeners should, should know um, that, that's covered in your book? Well, I'm really glad that Jack just talked about decoction. I think it's a word that Americans are starting to become familiar with, and I, I agree. I don't know that they understand exactly how it affects the beer, but um, it's you know it's this old tradition that was actually dying out. I mean, it's, a, it's an old Bavarian tradition uh, that was preserved by the Czechs. It's not actually that common among larger, certainly larger breweries in Germany anymore. Um, but it's a more craft approach. It's more hands-on, and it produces a subtle... Uh, quality, which, you know, for a long time, there was a debate about whether you could even tell if a beer was decocted. Uh, although I think if you taste them in, in blind tastings, it's pretty clear. It has a, a profound effect on the, the, the flavor, but also a kind of the body and, and the, uh, the presentation of the beer shifts. So, you know, I, I, love, I love that Americans now are starting to understand process in the way that our beers are made. Um, we're, we're starting to see as lagers become more popular for the first time, people are talking about styles 
from the Czech Republic, like uh, Czech dark lagers, tamaves, or chernes. I even we have a local brewery that uh, alerted me that they have a palatamave, which is a Czech amber lager. Um, you know, because American craft beer feeds on innovation and change, and so many breweries have discovered all these wonderful lager styles that are not so common in the United States. Uh, and and investigating how they're made and seeing that they're made with different ingredients with different processes, um, and so we're we're really it's a kind of a heyday uh, right now uh, for people who want more obscure lager varieties, well obscurity of Americans anyway, um, that are made properly and they're made the way they were made originally, so that we can taste how those those ingredients and processes uh, create a, a different flavor profile. So that's exciting for me, and I, I of course talk about all those in the book. No, I've got a lot of notes from you. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm going to ask Jack about, you know, the, the beers he has with color. Like there's one of your dark lagers called Shipping Out of Boston that I like. But like th- that's a little kind of like an old school amber lager where there's there's like almost a sweetness to it. Um, h- how do you work with color and flavor when, when, you're, when you're making, you know, lagers with color? Yeah, it really depends on what what we're trying to recreate and what the inspiration for the beer is. So the beer you mentioned, which is shipping out of Boston, that is a beer that we really went to a a, a different. Uh, we took different inspirations than we generally do because normally we're we're looking to Germany, we're looking to uh, continental hop styles. Sorry, not continental beer styles. But for this one, we really wanted to take a cue from American pioneering craft craft ales, I would say. Um, and we we brewed a beer that uses a lot of American malts and a lot of American hops. And you know, it's not a over the top style, but it's sort of a, a beer that reminds me of uh, a 1995 amber ale almost that you might get in Portland, Oregon. Um, and that sort of that sort of balance that you don't really see today anymore. That when when I started in the beer industry, people talked about balance, and that meant something. It meant that there is a a certain amount of bitterness to a certain amount of malt, um, you know, and that sort of balance isn't really found in in a lot of modern craft craft beer today. And not, not that's not a uh, an assessment of quality. That's just an assessment of how people are brewing. Um, I really wanted to bring back a much more, um, for for us, we were really trying to recreate something that you would have potentially got uh, thirty years ago at at, a, at your local brew pub or or something like that by using these ingredients and and using these uh, processes to to make this beer. And I know I'm referencing ales, but um, uh, and this is a lager because all, all of our beers are lagers, but that's really where we got that inspiration from. So it uses like crystal hops and uh, uses uh, two local maltsters here in Massachusetts, uh, Valley Malt and Stonepath Malt to create that beer. Wow. Hey, Jeff, before we, we got on the air, um, I know you were excited to talk to Jack. Um, h- how much of the Jack's Abbey have you had or – well, I'm lucky in that my wife is a New Englander. Uh, she was actually born in the other Portland, <laughs> and uh, she's got three brothers who live in the Boston area. And one of them, uh, my brother-in-law, Tom, I, I, I would love to remember how many years ago this was. I'm going to guess five or six years ago. I was visiting, and he he's a, a beer fan as well. Actually, they're 
her whole family is, which is cool. Uh, sometimes we even go on brewery tours. Uh, he had some Jack's Abbey and he said, you know, I, I, there's this brewery, they only make lagers. And that was unusual for New England, especially for New England. New England is a really kind of characteristic ale country. And that goes back way pre craft beer. You know, this is um, a place where the English tradition was born and, and imported from uh, from that when it was a colony way back when. Uh, so it was, it was really unusual and I was intrigued and it, it, uh, Jack's beer was on my radar right from the start. And every time I've gone back, I've, I've sought out, uh, what he has like these special releases mostly because I've gone through the, the whole portfolio, I think for the most part. And, um, I'm always curious to see what's going on. And, and, uh, it was pretty prescient. I mean, I think the, the idea that you would make, you know, loggers, craft loggers, um, was a bit of a, a risky <laughs> bet in America 10 years ago. So um, I, I'm happy that the market has followed him and that, that he's still making good beer there in the Boston area. So that's great. Hey, um, Jack, you know, also about lagers, most people think that lagers, like the yeast doesn't really add anything, flavor or anything. Um, what, how do you work with the yeast um, in your beers? Yeah, yeast is key, and whether or not the yeast is contributing its own esters or phenolic characters is sort of besides the point. It, it is creating a lot of flavor, and a lot of that flavor is enhancement of malt character, enhancement of hop character, and there is certainly some flavor contribution from the, from the yeast as well. So it's definitely a consideration that you you need to be really careful about because uh, for as much as really great lager beer has less flavor contributions from yeast, it is really easy to get a lot of flavor contribution from lager yeast, and it's often not uh, in in a good way. So uh, having really healthy yeast, making sure you're producing beer that will um, be beneficial to that, to that yeast. It's not like a lot of ale strains, which basically will ferment anything. I mean, I, I love, I, I brewed a lot, long time in a pub and it was great to brew with like Belgian yeast or wheat yeast or something like that. And didn't, it almost didn't matter what you did with that yeast. It was going to, it was going to ferment and going to give you uh, a great tasting product. but that's not necessarily how lager yeast works. Yeah, I love that question. I think I think uh, we don't spend anywhere near enough time talking about the way uh, yeast affects the flavor profile of lager, and I think it's really really critical. When you think of some of the classic uh, German and Czech beers and why they're so good, a big part of it, in in nearly every case, is the yeast profile, um, which which is subtle and we don't have language, the same kind of language that we have when we talk about esters and phenols with ales um, to talk about lager yeast. But um, it's a it's a critical component. And I love what Jack says about how uh, it, in some ways it's I think it's an integrative component. So it, it, it inflects the hops, it inflects the malt and it integrates them in a way that that uh, maybe ale yeast doesn't. Maybe ale yeast is much more of its own flavor component that rests like a like a, a, a distinctive element. Um, so I wish we would talk a lot more about the flavor of uh, yeast in lagers because I think it's critical. 
And one of those big flavor contributions is is sulfur, and not just in the in the way you think nev- negatively about sulfur, but a lot of really positive sulfur compounds that can be formed from the fermentation with lager yeast, and that really becomes a, a big com- component of of that yeast character, uh, subtle sulfur characteristics, um, and how they will interact with the rest of the beer. Yeah, it's it's that crisp quality we all love. It's uh, uh, so important. Well, cheers to you guys. If we were in person, I'd be toasting you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, uh, I don't know. I know normally when we get to do this in studio, Jimmy, you have beer. Uh, I did crack. Uh, I, we don't get uh, Jack Savvy out here in Oregon, but um, I do have a Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest. So I'm, I'm saluting you with uh, a seasonally appropriate lager. That's great. What are you drinking, Jack? Well, I have some Copper Legend and some uh, Munich style Fest beer here here on my desk at, at the brewery. All right, Munich style Fest. Um, you know, just going back to like selling beer, I've noticed a couple of times I've been up in Boston, Jack. That Jack's Abbey has a bar at like the train station by the where the the Celtics and the Bruins play. Um, are you doing any branded beers for for like? any of the sports teams or anything for fall coming up? Yeah, absolutely. So we're the official craft beer of the Boston Celtics. And that, that was uh, finalized about a year ago. And we have a beer out called pride and parquet, which is a hoppy lager that we brew for the Celtics. So that we're re-releasing, I believe we just packaged it this week or last week. It's going back out to distribution. And uh, just in time for the start of the new basketball season. Yeah. So the the Celtics, are, they're they're a basketball team. I think I've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really big deal. This is uh, it, I think it's probably inarguable that Boston is the biggest sports town in America. Um, that must that must feel pretty good. Yeah, it's it's it was an amazing opportunity. It was an opportunity we never expected to be able to have, um, and we're just super excited to partner with the Celtics and be able to put a beer out with their their brand on. So, really cool partnership. Um, we're actually going to be doing some fun fun events and some special releases with them in the upcoming upcoming months. That's awesome. Well, that's that's a good cheers. We'll toast to that. Hey, um, going back to Jack again, um, hoppy lagers. Um, when did you start playing around with with hops in the lagers? Really, from the beginning. Our fourth beer we ever brewed at the brewery was called Hopponius Union. It's a beer we still brew today, and that really put us on the map for a lot of beer drinkers around here. We had brewed a Pilsner, a black lager, an amber lager, and people like them. But when we put the the Hopponies Union out, which we we called an IPL at the time, uh, that's when we really got a lot of excitement for some of the beers that, that we started to continue to brew. So um, I, I think in many ways that lagers are are better than ales to showcase hops, you know, not necessarily in the way that they're brewed in hazy, hazy IPAs. But if you think back 10 years ago, West coast IPA was the main style of IPA. And really it was a natural transition to go from West coast IPA to IPL. And those are 
the, all those styles of West Coast IPA were about dryness. They're about bitterness. They're about very low yeast influence. And by brewing it with lager yeast, we really were able to showcase hops in a in a in a new way. And that was something that you know we still do today, where we have a whole line of beers that we call hoppy lagers that are single dry hops, um, like Sitcher Brow and Nelson Brow and Mosaic Brow. Um, and it's just a different way to showcase hops uh, compared to the way hops are generally being used today in, in more of a hazy New England style. Jeff, in your book, um, just tell us how, how you're, you categorize different styles of lagers. I mean, do you cover hoppy lagers, for example? I I think I'm so it's a long <laughs> it's a long book and I can't remember uh, exactly how I I do everything. I think I cover hoppy loggers more in the IPA section when you're talking about uh, the ones like Jack's mentioning. Um, we we incidentally uh, to Jack's point, uh, we have a local brewer who who developed a thing he calls a cold IPA. Yeah, which I is, love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which is exactly what Jack's talking about. It's taking those those uh, spikier um, elements that come out of, of hot bitterness and are, are laid bare with, with lager yeasts. So much more of a, of an old school approach. Um, so that's interesting that you mentioned that <laughs> I'm reminded of the, the, the cold IPA. Uh, for the most part, we haven't seen a lot of evolution in the lager category. Loggers really in the, you know, uh, they're, they're a fairly old, it's an old tradition and the, both the German and, and the Czech traditions for different reasons really uh, have, have a lot of continuity. Uh, in the Czech Republic, it has to do with you know, the, the 20th century, the uh, various political issues that, that they were beset by. Um, and in, in Germany, I think it's because they have this long Bavarian tradition that goes back centuries. So those, those have become pretty fixed. You know, when you're talking about a beer like a a Dunkel Lager or a Bach, um, even a Helles is now over 100 years old. Um, Pilsner is 180 years old. So we haven't seen a huge amount of innovation on those. And I'm curious about what, you know, if I ever write a third edition of the Beer Bible, I'm curious to see how uh, an American lager tradition might emerge that looks distinct from the European one. Um, and I'm looking, Jack just mentioned Valley Malts and other local craft maltsters. That's very traditional among lager breweries to use local malt houses. Um, most of these craft brewery, uh, craft malt houses now uh, are, are delving into more characterful barley varieties. So they might be bred by a local university for the climate in which uh, they're grown. Uh, they may be heirloom varieties, whatever, uh, but they're more characterful and they, they have more, uh, you know, they, they provide, especially for base malts, more for a brewer to work with. I mean, one of the things that I notice about a lot of American Pilsners is they all taste like Weirman malt because <laughs> that's <laughs> one of the, the few malts that we get um, from Germany. So, there's a kind of sameness there. So what happens when, when Americans start using um, American craft barleys, uh, you know, American hops, uh, maybe different processes? I'm really curious if Jack is, is working with process differences that don't look like the Bavarian or the Czech tradition uh, and local ingredients. And 
it, it could be uh, that we see in a decade or two or three um, a new American lager tradition that emerges that's maybe not quite as ground shaking as the IPA tradition, but um, one that, that actually reshuffles lagers for the first time in, in decades. Jack? Yeah, I mean, this is certainly something we've we've thought about. Um, we're curious where the lager thing is going here in the U.S., but I hate to be pessimistic. I, I'm just—it's hard for me to wrap my head around the industry being able to to shift away from the direction it's really going. And I'm not to say lagers may not become a bigger part of craft beer; they probably will. I, I just don't see them being able to break through the stranglehold that IPA has on the market. And for multiple reasons, uh, besides the the enthusiasm from consumers, there's just some practical business decisions that make brewing lager really challenging, and it would it's really going to break the financial um, the financial design of how people are building their breweries. You know, our our flagship beer that we brew every single week and we do, I don't know, 20, 25,000 barrels a year of is a beer that we let sit in, sit in tanks for six weeks. You know, that's not, that's not a business model that a lot of brewers, particularly small ones can, can handle. You know, we, we made that decision because we love the beers we make and, you know, we, we do it because we're passionate about Hellas. Um, but I'm not sure that, that a lot of brewers are going to be able to make that sort of adjustment to their business model. Hey, uh, we're off to a great start. And since we're mentioning craft malt, I want to give a shout out. And Jeff, I don't know if you're going, but February 18th and 19th in 2022, the craft malt conference is going to be in Portland, Maine. And we're going to plan some fun things up there, but we're going to be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking the Book of Lagers, or is it the Beer Bible 2 with Jeff Allworth and Jack Hendler from <laughs> Jack's Abbey? So, Jeff, we're gonna have some, we're having some fun with this. You, you, you joke with me. I, I said you've got a nice lager chapter, and you said? Uh, it's a lager section. I have a lot of lagers. I talk about all the lagers. <laughs> the lager section. And we're talking to Jack. But, you know, we, we, we I love how, where we went with this. We started talking about yeasts, and then we ended up talking about craft malt. And I was just saying that the craft malt conference is going to be in Portland, Maine this winter, in February 18th and 19th. 
And um, I don't know if it's on either of your radars. Um, I don't know, Jack, are, are you, is Craft Mall Conference something that you would be going to? It's definitely an interesting topic. I will not be attending this year, however, but I was just at our Maltzer in Germany about a month ago. That's Erich's Malt in Kulmbach. And we were sort of getting an understanding of malt development there. And it's very interesting about how it, it differs in Germany versus here, where in Germany, there's a much stronger, much more robust barley breeding program, almost similar to how robust our hop breeding program here is in the U.S. Uh, and it's not the same here for malt. Uh, you know, hopefully that's starting to change. But, you know, malt is either bred by the big brewers or it's bred uh, by universities here at a much smaller scale. And I'm not sure if that's uh, an economic reason or what exactly the why there's so much more in Germany for for coming up with new new uh, barley varieties. Um, but certainly, I think that there's an opportunity here in the U.S. to grow some more malt varieties that are more specific to craft brewers. Because if you think about the history of the malt that we're using here in the U.S., it's all been bred either to be similar to six row because it was bred like six row. And it was, it's been bred by companies that are either big brewers or uh, institutions that haven't really had craft brewers in mind. So it, it, you know, it is starting to change, but it is, um, it is something that we're well behind in, in the U S market. And Jeff. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. And I, I personally think it's going to change beer quite a bit in the United States as craft uh, malt comes online. Uh, I, I was, by good chance, just recently at Skagit Valley Malting, which is up here in Washington State, the Pacific Northwest. And it's a cool valley where they grow all their barley, mo almost all the barley they malt there, they grow in, in the Skagit Valley. Um, and it's very different from the the regions where most of the malt or most of the barley is grown in the United States so much so that there's a, a an organization called the American Malt Barley Association and they they uh they authorize different uh barley varieties for malting but they but because most of the farms are in really dry hot areas uh the different barleys that grow there and grow in a way that, that the large industrial brewers want, like Jack mentioned, um, they're, they're fairly limited. Uh, but those barleys will grow, grow a lot better in different climates like the ones in Skagit Valley. So they're experimenting with these different uh, barleys that they come across. They, they just recently tried one with a Czech variety that I super loved called Franson. Um, and, you know, they're, they're experimenting all the time with new varieties. And at that malt house, they they have their own little, uh, I think it's a two-barrel brewery where they will make different batches of the same Pilsner with different malts so brewers can come in and try them and see how, how radically different they are. And they are really radically different. They don't actually even all taste like Pilsner sometimes. Um, and you can see it, you know, it's just evident in the way the, the malt is, is so different that it can radically change a beer. And I think that for me was very exciting. I saw how... Um, 
that could get the consumer excited about this whole new different dimension they're not really aware of. And, you know, they'll, they'll look on a can to see if the word citra and mosaic is there, but they, would they look, <laughs> to, you know, to see what kind of malt is there, what barley variety. And, Maybe and, they will in the future. And where, where it's grown because it's terroir, right? That's exactly right. hundred percent. Yeah, I know New York spent a lot of time and resources to try to develop a New York State barley that, that could be used for beer because I think that's, you know, places like New York really bit off a lot to, to push their, their, their craft, their, their farm brewers uh, licenses. And both between the hops and, and the malts, um, it's been like, you know, close to 10 years where they're just – just figuring it out, you know, even though there's some great maltsters and, 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 and hop, hop farms and things. Um, it's not something you can learn overnight. And then, that Jack, that brings me back to you talking about Germany. Um, they didn't learn overnight, did they? Um, Absolutely not. No, it's, it, you know, you, I think the average age of a brewery that I went was like 268 years old or something like that. I, you know, it, it's, it's almost like comical, uh, you know, putting, they, they always put like since, you know, 1648 or whatever on their label. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's almost like inertia over there. It's just like, it's just what they've done and it's what they know. And they, they keep, keep brewing. Um, and it is, the, the most interesting thing is to see how much American brewers are now influencing German brewers. I would say about a third to a half of the breweries that I went to had some sort of IPA that they were brewing or selling. And often they didn't want to put it under their own brand. They'd, they'd create a second brand and, and make a, an IPA. Um, but that's the first time I've ever really noticed that. It's been two years since I've been to Germany, and I was sort of blown away by all these non-loggers that they they were brewing not in any sort of large scale but just the fact that they were doing it was was interesting that is interesting hey J jeff you know w with the book i'm sure you're going to travel what are some regions that you want to you want to highlight that that we should visit in our lives uh in the united states or in uh elsewhere else, else both well, I will say uh, Americans have become fairly insular in their beer interest. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, everybody was looking to Belgium or Germany or Czech Republic for the new interesting beers. Um, and because we have become such great brewers, folks like Jack uh, out there making amazing beers, like, you know, you can get a, a great Hellas from Framingham, why? <laughs> why would you get a, 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 Bellis, a Hellas that's been all beaten up uh, as it's been shipped all the way from Germany? The, the downside is that it, if people have kind of forgotten that these traditions are amazing and that when you're in, you know, when you're in Bavaria, when you're in Franconia, drinking a Hellas uh, fresh from the local brewery, it's pretty spectacular. It's pretty amazing. So I, I do encourage people to go. I think uh, the classic places like the UK, the Czech Republic and uh, Belgium, of course, are, are wonderful places to go. I had the opportunity to go to Vilnius, Lithuania, uh, this last trip uh, for the Beer Bible research, uh, thanks to because they have a really interesting beer culture that I was alerted to from the writings of uh, Lars Garschel, who's been writing about European farmhouse traditions of the Baltics and Scandinavia. And I would recommend any serious beer fan, if you want to have your mind blown, uh, Vilnius is a good place to do it uh, because the beer there is is very unusual and What's fascinating is that the farmhouse tradition, uh, which is this very specific 
kind of ancient, uh, bizarre tradition, really, <laughs> uh, has produced this beer that's very sweet. Um, it's actually highly attenuated. That is to say it's mostly fermented out, but it's still very sweet, which is unusual. Um, and it has a kind of quality of sweetness that comes partly from diacetyl, which is a flavor compound, but also isoamyl acetate, which is a different flavor compound. But they don't taste necessarily the same way that they do in the beers that we have out here, where they're often off flavors. And it's just very unusual beer. And because that's been the flavor palette for centuries, as uh, beer got more and more commercial and, and, and industrial, th- those flavor notes filtered up so when you buy, uh, you know, what you would consider as a locally made sort of mass market lager variety, uh, you know, a pale lager, you still find these flavor notes in it, um, which are really unusual. So basically all the beer there uh, has this unique imprint of, of Lithuanian brewing. And it's really quite something to see. Uh, totally, <laughs> totally unusual and unlike beer you'll find anywhere else so it's it's way off the beaten path um but i highly recommend lithuania and and vilnius is sort of that the capital city is where you find the most diversity you know jeff we we had lars on a like on a year ago and i think that he helped spotlight the kvikis talk about uh fast fast brewing geese um but but for you how did you go from i mean you're the ultimate beer geek you're, you're actually you're a, but you're a really good writer and researcher how did you become a beer writer. <laughs> well, weren't, weren't you studying? Weren't you like an academic or something? Yeah, uh, I, my life is a hodgepodge of random stuff, and uh, the beer thing is was was part of that hodgepodge. I started writing a column for the local Alt Weekly here in Portland back in the '90s when it became available. Um, I just submitted a, a sample story and an application, and they hired me. And that was fun, and I did that for a while. And I, I, I then I started doing some freelance work and writing. Uh, and yes, I was doing uh, research for a university at the time. My job was as a university researcher. And then at a certain point, um, I had the opportunity to write the Beer Bible, the first edition of the Beer Bible. And I went, at, I became a full time writer. I shifted over my career so that it was focused entirely on writing about beer. And it was really writing the Beer Bible that that I think. I thought I knew a lot about beer when I started writing that book. I thought I understood beer and everything that went into it. And the more I got into the history, the technical pieces, and really the culture, which was the most amazing uh, part of uh, the beer world that I didn't fully understand until I started traveling. Um, Once I learned all that stuff, I realized that I was not I wasn't really competent to write that book, and they probably shouldn't have hired me. (laughs) Uh, But I did all the work and and um, you know tried to tried to get caught up and tried to be a, as much of an expert in those various areas as I could so that the book would be good. Um, and it was like I mean, it was one of the most uh, I was I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have been given that opportunity because it was like getting a, a PhD in beer, and um, I you know it did. It, it, it was just amazing. It was an amazing opportunity. And when I got to travel around the country here and then in Europe, I, I was able to just drop a list of my, you know, the breweries I respected the most. And nearly every one of them allowed me to come and the master brewer would show me around. And, um, you know, I got to see beer at a, at a level I never would have imagined. And for a beer fan, uh, those experiences were just precious. And, and I hope that 
that love uh, comes out in the book because it was really a tremendous experience. And, and it, it kind of, as much as I loved beer before I started writing the book, um, it, <laughs> it, it, it went, I became, I fell in love 10 times more. You know, um, before I go back to Jack, I just want to ask you, and there's a million things I can ask you, so I'll ask them all. One, um, the, the beer Bible, it reads like a pub list with the different styles. I, I think recently you wrote, uh, you, you were writing about styles and how Michael Jackson, the writer, kind of set, set, the, set the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at all the different beers that are made in the world and you have to think about a way of trying to talk about them that makes sense to people. And it, in many cases, we already had language. When you talk about uh, Hellespeer in, in Bavaria, you know, Bavarians understood Hellespeer. They know what it is and they know it by name and they know the tradition, the history and, and what what uh, ingredients should go into it. But there are, there are a lot of beers that are much <laughs> fall into a, a much more of a gray area. And so, you know, he was this Yorkshire writer uh, and he started traveling the world and he just decided to try to make sense of it all in a comprehensive way that that hadn't been done in a in a you know in a in a worldwide with a worldwide view ever before at the level that he did it and we inherited that when you talk about the bjcp style guidelines that came straight from michael jackson um and uh, you know we we've we've expanded somewhat since then and beer has changed and so things have evolved but he was really the 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 person who brought a kind of sophisticated taxonomy to the way we think about beer yeah, no, I, I love his book. That was one of the first beer books I read like 30 years ago. Hey, um, back to Jack. Jack, so Oktoberfest, your Copper Legends and Oktoberfest, we all love it. And and some, some sometimes we, we have questions about Oktoberfest. Like why does it start coming out in August in, in some breweries? <laughs> and, and how would it have been different in Germany? Like was that the tradition to release it in August? Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a wide question there. So why do we release it in August? When is it released in, in Germany? So the, the interesting thing about Germany is you can only call your beer Oktoberfest if you brew your beer in Munich. So, um, a lot of people will brew Fest beer and Fest beer, uh, generally comes out. Well, it was out when I was there. So I was there last week of August. Um, so I guess people in Germany are releasing their fest beer in August. But the, the thing about Oktoberfest that is really confusing is that it's really Septemberfest. So it, if you put the beer out in August, you get you have enough time to get it into distribution <laughs> and have it ready for September when Oktoberfest actually happens. So I believe uh, Oktoberfest is would would have been over on this Sunday. So it would have started... Geez, the 18th of September, I think. So, you know, it's earlier than you think it is. The other problem with Oktoberfest is November 1st, that beer is old and no good. Um, you know, you, you don't want it out in November. But even though it's a style of beer that I think should be should be brewed year, year round, I, I love the style. I wish you could market it and brand it as something else. So you could sell it year round. But when it's called Oktoberfest or a fest beer, People really only expect it for a certain time of year. So that's sort of why the beer comes out in August. 
uh, get gets has time to be available in September when Oktoberfest happens and be done by November first because that is definitely a date no one wants to see that beer anymore. Oh yeah. Hey, and then uh, Jeff, uh, in the second edition of the book, um, did you expand on the check? Check style categories since the first edition? I didn't. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, I think I wrote about those styles in a comprehensive way that not so many people have written about before, in, in the English language anyway. Um, it was a thing that really blew my mind when I went to the Czech Republic was to see that not only did they not have things that we call pilsners, um, that they call uh, you know Svetli Pivo, but they had amber lagers and dark lagers and wheat beers and all this other stuff, and and it's kind of hidden from us. And even even the thing we we call pilsner is a is a fairly diverse style uh, with, a, with a broad range. Um, now we're starting to see those beers being made in America, and it's funny because brewers constantly contact me and say, "Okay, when you were there, how were they, <laughs> did they use caramel malt in this? How do they make this?" Um, because people are now discovering that Czech has this this old tradition, um, you know, that, that goes back centuries uh, of different beer styles, uh, and, and they're distinctive. They're not Bavarian. I I think historically people always just characterize them as, as Czech versions of German beer styles. And and that, that was, that was not accurate. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't, I didn't have to expand it this time because they haven't really changed that much. And I, I think I did a pretty good job the first time around. I hope I did. Yeah. Hey, um, you go, Jack. I was just going to say it would be really interesting to know more about Czech beer 70 years ago because, you know, the, the real issue for, for us thinking about Czech beers now is is communism for how many decades that, that they were controlled. So, like, we, we sort of missed out on Czech beer for a long time and we only sort of know what what survives from that from that time period so we sort of a, a lot got lost and it's it is interesting to start seeing a lot more information now and something that we're working on at the brewery right now is trying to brew a bunch of Czech style lagers and doing the research on what these may have been like uh with less knowledge or less information than you can find about all, all the german styles of lager beer have you talked to sorry i don't mean to uh, hijack your show jimmy but have you talked oh, to no uh, adam Broch at uh, budvar i have not no that brewery is owned by the czech republic um and they do a lot of research they're connected to a uh, university and i think um uh, uh might might have a lot of archival information i would recommend talking to those folks they probably have some great info that's part of it is finding breweries that are still you know that that are still uh, independent and have all those records and that, that kind of continuity. And I know that they do at, at Boudoir. So I'd recommend them. Awesome. I will look into that. Yeah. And, and Adam's a sweetheart. I think he would love to talk to you about it. Perfect. <laughs> well, great, great connection guys. We know we could talk all night. If do either one of you have a, a, another question for the other, because I think this is pretty cool. Jeff and Jack talking. Well, I, I guess I have to ask Jack, do you have a cold IPA? <laughs> I guess we brew a lot of cold IPA. It depends on, on what you want to call it. I, I've actually, um, uh, yeah, you know, so we call them hoppy lagers or IPLs or or whatever else. But uh, I, I think anything that helps to to sell this style of beer, I think, is is great for for 
hoppy lagers or whatever you want to call them, cold IPAs. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. And then, J- Jack, do you have a question for Jeff? Oh, man, putting me on the on the spot here. Uh, I mean, I, I have a million questions. I actually follow you on Twitter and I see how <laughs> see how active you are on uh, on uh, on Twitter and, and all the things you're getting into. And I, I'm really curious about, you know, obviously we're here to talk about lager, but what do you you heard my sort of pessimistic view on the future of lager? What, what is your thought on where lager is going for the next decade? Yeah, I'm much, much more bullish, and it's and it's it's weird. I think it's because uh, Portland, Oregon to a lesser extent, but Portland in particular has become a real bastion of lager brewing, and it's you know we're we're starting to see a lot of very interesting and fun lagers emerging, um, and I, I mean I mean and they're commercial. It's not just brewers who want to make them and you know, like saisons 10 years ago um you know many breweries have a lager as one of their flagships very few breweries will not have one lager and in, in their flagship line that's on a on tap at all times um and and you know the 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 corollary to that is that consumers are becoming much more educated and demanding those beers and I, do you, I do you little, find that these beers are Pilsner styles or really hoppy styles or, or is it sort of across the board? Pilsner is definitely the most popular uh, lager style, but they're not hoppy Pilsners necessarily. Um, they are, they're, they're a diverse group. Uh, I would say the preponderance are, are German lagers, probably, you know, not more than 30 IBUs. Uh, and I, yeah, I think Hellas is actually pretty common too uh, which is also not a hoppy style so they're much more traditional they're not um they're not what you would think like oh portland is doing lagers sure you know you're just making <laughs> ipas with lager yeast um they're, they're much more in the tradition of lagers with characterful malts uh and subdued use of hops with really ac- accentuating the crispy kind of you know uh sessionable quality and, and I am shocked to see that that hasn't happened in the rest of the country, but but it does give me hope that it could happen in the rest of the country. So I'm hoping that, um, you know, if, if brewers continue to put it out there, I think they are such good beers that customers uh, may eventually come around, especially we haven't talked about food, but, um, you know, the, the tremendous IPAs just overwhelm food. They're not table friendly, whereas a lager uh, is so often great with food. Um, and I think chefs have really been pushing them in, in, in Portland. So m- maybe that's another way, um, uh, you know, in other parts of the country, people will start to f- bridge over to uh, lagers. You know, for, for me, the, the thing that I like best about lager, and it's why I go to Germany a lot, is just that how you drink them and where you drink them. And, you know, sitting out with your friends for a few hours at a beer garden is a lot easier with a, a 5% lager than it is with a eight percent ipa and it definitely changes the whole drinking dynamic yeah totally we we, yeah. we like to drink beer at pubs here too which is a big pub town and i think maybe that's another reason it, it, it's helpful but that's the case with new england too it's also a big pub place you know you've got inclement weather and singing a pub is a nice <laughs> thing to do in the winter yeah sure hey J- jeff are you going to um new england at all on this trip I am. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, my my wife and I, I visit her family around Thanksgiving, so we're doing that again. And I'm going to do a stop at Notch Brewing in Salem, Massachusetts, and Maine Beer Company in Freeport, Maine, um, right around the, the week before Thanksgiving. Great. 
Hey, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Jeff Allworth, uh, the, the Beer Bible second edition book is out. And for our fans out there, we love Jeff Allworth as a beer writer and Twitter guy. You're the only reason I read Twitter, Jeff, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep up with your Twitter novels. Um, Thank you. And then Jack, with uh, your your lager focus, um, I'm really looking forward to uh, going up to a basketball game in Boston and <laughs> dr- yeah. drinking drinking your uh, wh- what beer again is it gonna, is it going to be with the Celtics? Uh, the beer is called Pride and Parquet. Pride and Parquet. So we'll check that out. So thanks so much, guys. Thanks to our engineer Armin Spengen. Um, I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. See you guys later. Bye. Take care. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.